For about the last uh, 15 years or so, one of my favorite genres of music has been something called alt-country, which may be a term that's familiar to you, but if it's not, I really want to specify this at the very beginning. I want to be as crystal clear as I can be. Alt-country has nothing to do with the alt-right. All right? Let's just, if, in fact, the exact opposite in temperament and tone and content. Alt-country, that alt is for alternative because all country kind of goes back to some of the lost traditions of country music, not the national top 40 kind of stuff and integrates aspects of rockabilly and, and punk and at times R&B and, and southern soul music. And the roster of artists who are associated with all country, sometimes called Americana music, are kind of really diverse, much more diverse than the image we have of what country music looks like when we think of country music. And it's not just that. It's that. All country artists are really engaged in questioning some of the myths of country music, which is to say some of the core myths of what it is to be American. All country artists are known for really critiquing their own place, privilege, context, engaging issues of race, class, gender, sexual orientation. And also at the same time, a lot of alt-country artists are also very open about their own emotional vulnerability. It's one of the reasons that this guy there on the guitar in back of me, Jason Isbell, is one of my favorite artists. His album from 2013, Southeastern, uh, for those of us in recovery, perhaps as I am a person in recovery, um, his album there is one of the most honest explorations of a person's healing recovery from substance use disorder that I have ever heard. His most recent album, about a year ago, old now, um, he's got a song, kind of a quiet song, that he opens the album with called The Last of My Kind. And if you didn't know Jason Isbell or anything about him, you might actually think that it's something of a reactionary song because it's told from the perspective of a guy who seems to think that the world is passing him by and the world has become this big, scary place in which he cannot find his place any longer. But if you know Jason Isbell, you know that's not who he is at all. In fact, he explains something about this song, Am I the Last of My Kind? He says it's written from the perspective of someone who's a little bit afraid and feels isolated. Maybe I don't belong. And that the way of life I'm used to I have is dying. But then talking about himself, he says, yeah, maybe I used to feel that way. But that's now mostly been replaced with somebody that's more hopeful and less fearful. I love what Jason Isbell says here, that he has replaced himself with himself, that he is committed to his own growth, broader, more open, more spacious, more free, and not just concerned with his own freedom, but with the freedom of other people as well, too. And I thought that word replace, if you remember about a year, well, now about 13 months ago, that word replace, what a different context we may have heard it in 13 months ago here, this Charlottesville. The alt-right, which is really just a BS term for the social media for Nazis and white supremacists. You remember that chant? You will not replace us. Sometimes it was Jews will not replace us. 
And yeah, I think for anyone who tries to live with their heart open, with a growth orientation and mindset and concern not just for their own freedom, but for the freedom of all other people, that just sends a chill right through us. And I remember thinking at, at the time, well, if there's anything to be grateful for here, it's at least that they are completely honest about where their fear and their hatred comes from. <laughs> it gets right to the core of it. That scarce snake brain way of thinking and feeling that cannot even imagine a world in which power could be transformed and shared with more than it is right now. It is just zero sum. Your power, your growth means my diminishment from the perspective of the marchers in Charlottesville. At least they were honest about the fear that curdles into hatred. And of course, it is completely counter to everything we know, everything we can know about growth and empowerment and healing and wholeness. It is a perspective counter to even one of the first books that we used here at Wellsprings when this organization was growing. It's a book written from a different tradition than our Unitarian Universalist tradition. But, you know, we say that wisdom comes in many sources and many languages. It's a book called The Seven Practices of Effective Ministry. And I love that the second to last practice, replace yourself. They say it's going to happen anyway. It's inevitable. So you might as well start preparing now. That's an effective practice, not just for ministry, but for life. Replace yourself. And what I love about Jason Isbell says, replace yourself with yourself. This idea, you will not replace us, zero sum. It is counter to our faith tradition, our Unitarian Universalism, and deeply counter to this message series, Emerging Now, which is about recognizing that change, the one constant in all of our lives, is something we can work with or work against. And if we work with this change, then we grow. And grow ourselves. And I also believe that when we are authentically growing, we give implicit or explicit permission for the people around us to grow as well, too. It's one of the reasons that in my own life. I travel what I like to refer to is not Buddhism, but let's just say the Buddha path, because <laughs> that tradition begins in this understanding, we suffer because we, we, because we cling to what we think does not change, <laughs> when in fact everything changes. We suffer when we attach to the changing as if it wasn't or can't or does not. And so the delusion, the cruelty that can come out, the suffering that can arise for ourselves and other people, when we refuse to allow ourselves and others and our world to change. This is the heart of any dogma. I think sometimes it can be too easy for those of us who are progressive spiritual types to say, OK, we're a non-dogmatic tradition. That's true only to a point. But the heart of any dogma, especially sometimes our self-image, which can be the biggest dogma there is that we carry, 
is that we're fixed and we're final. But we all know it, right? If we're fixed and we're final, that chances are we're a fossil. (laughs) We are not living or growing, either literally or metaphorically. Now, maybe it's easy for me to say this, uh, still on the other side by a couple years of 50, that I am right now. Um, But I recently heard uh, a self-described old-timer really embrace this capacity not to be a fossil. It was here at this event where I was asked to share the closing prayer. This was a tough event. It's August 31st, every single year, Overdose Awareness Day in the midst of this opioid epidemic, which, if you've been at Wellsprings for a little while, you know has touched and broken our hearts here within our community. So at this event, they had a number of people speaking. One guy got up and shared his story and started talking about who he was. And he described himself from within his recovery tradition and path that he is traveling as an old timer. Decades, decades of recovery, of sobriety from drugs and alcohol. People clapped, celebrated him. And the truth is, we also kind of knew what was coming. And then he started to talk about his son. His beloved son, his only son, who, yes, died of an opioid overdose. Now, this guy who was sharing his own story, this older man, I guess he's in his late 60s, early 70s, travels, as I do, an abstinence-based path of recovery. And he talked about that one of the things his life has led him to is to go back to school for a counseling degree, to be able to work with other people in recovery. And he said, I learned about this thing called harm reduction. And I don't know if you know what harm reduction is. In the most basic form, uh, you have already engaged in harm reduction, or at least I hope you have, especially on a rainy day like today. But pretty much every time you get in your car, I hope that you're all doing harm reduction, which is buckling up. Harm reduction is recognizing that a lot of things we do have risks involved. And so we seek not to avoid those behaviors, but to mitigate the risks. Condoms. Harm reduction. And when we talk about drugs and alcohol, it actually can be very controversial. Because what harm reduction is, is recognizing that we can offer resources to people to be healthy and even more to stay alive, even if they are not ready yet to give up the use of substances. Narcan keeps people alive after overdoses. Things like secure injection sites, which says to people, if you're going to use, we want you to stay alive because fundamentally only people who are alive can ever recover. It's easy for me, social work student, progressive minister, to believe in harm reduction. But when an old timer says something that actually is quite controversial and sometimes talking to other old timers, that's growth. That's thinking not just beyond the box, but as if there is no box at all other than wanting people to be healthy and to stay alive. 
I love to see this guy embrace this change, embrace some of the dogma that sometimes goes for teachings within the recovery community. And I see or I saw him doing this, which I love. Who wants change if you've seen this comic? Who wants to change? That's the hard part, right? We might know what works for us. But it may not work for other people. I think this is one of the reasons why many of us can be resistant to change. In fact, it's not change itself that many of us are afraid of. It's uncertainty. It's fear. It's losing control or power or privilege. Relinquishing that might be our deepest fear. When this happens in my life and I recognize my own change resistance, I try to remember what it was like to be a kid. And I try to remember that every growth experience I had in my childhood was about relinquishing control. Getting in the pool for the first time, riding a bike for the first time. Because the truth is, every growth experience I have had in my adult life as well, I think it's true for many of us, is about relinquishing control. Because then there's a deeper power. The power to choose to open ourselves up to take healthy risks. When we live our lives averse to giving up our power, control, our privilege, we will excuse or look away from a whole bunch of really troubling things rather than engage a process of change that is committed to our own growth and the growth of other people as well. I love the person in back of me as a teacher. I've never met her. Nadia Bowles Weber. Some of you might know her. Six foot two, covered in tattoos, Lutheran pastor, in recovery, bold speaking, bold preaching. She's got an awesome video that's like less than two minutes. And it's called simply Welcome to the Apocalypse. Welcome to the Apocalypse. Because her tradition, the Apocalypse, really has nothing to do with all the scary images of Halloween. The apocalypse, which she says she is going, we are going through right now as a culture, especially in this era of Me Too, in these revelations. This is, uh, we know, this is as current as today's news. This is an apocalypse. An apocalypse is only a process in which something hidden is being revealed. And she says, welcome to the apocalypse. Pull up a chair and make yourselves uncomfortable. (laughs) She's saying, pull up a chair and let's all make ourselves uncomfortable, especially, and I think she's talking to guys here right now, but also in the age of Black Lives Matter, if we're white. Again, we can run through the list and see all the ways in which an apocalypse might be happening in our world right now, in which things are being revealed, which formerly are hidden, or we just didn't know about because we didn't see it or didn't want to see it. What Nadia Bowles-Weber says And I believe her. 
is that apocalyptic times are times in which we are reminded that dominant powers are not ultimate powers. And that we can move from dominance as a way of being with each other to dignity. To really respecting one another. We can change and we can grow in these times when we ask ourselves key questions that, yes, make ourselves uncomfortable. The cognitive dissonance questions. For some of us who grew up to believe, you know, it's a land of equality. And we recognize how many people don't have the same opportunities as perhaps I might or you do. And we have to wrestle with that space. We have to feel the cognitive dissonance and not have an easy answer. Or for some people, it's being raised in a faith tradition that says we believe in love or the image of God is in all people and belongs to everyone. Except for them. This is Jen Hatmaker. Reverend Lee preached about her a number of weeks ago. Jen Hatmaker, who was a very, is a very well-known Christian blogger and writer and New York Times best-selling author, and comes out of a very traditional form of Christianity until she reached a crisis point in her faith when she recognized that the teaching she was receiving about LGBTQ people did not match what she believed to be the heart of love that her God proclaimed. And so in she, in her own way, came out publicly and said, I cannot be part of this bigotry anymore. And she paid for it. She lost a book contract. She's received death threats. And she has doubled down. The church that she's a part of, a little church, Texas. I don't know if you can read all this, so I'll read it to you. This is this past summer in Austin, Texas. Hot. This is Pride Weekend, and this is the Pride Festival. See, Jen Hatmaker wasn't just clear enough about where her path was taking her, what was emerging now in her life to be able to say, I was wrong and I'm trying something new. She wants to live her amends. And so my beloved little church went downtown to the hashtag Austin Pride Parade and gave out free mom hugs and free dad hugs, free grana hugs and free pastor hugs like it was our paying jobs. And when I say hugs, I mean the kind a mama gives her beloved kid. Our arms were never empty. We happy hugged a ton of folks for dozens of times. I'd spot someone in the parade, look our way, squint at our shirts and our posters and race into our arms. These were the dear hearts who said, I miss this. My mom doesn't love me anymore. My dad hasn't spoken to me in three years. Please. Just one more hug. You can only imagine what pastor hugs did to folks. So we told them over and over that they were impossibly loved and needed and precious. And we hugged until our arms fell off. This is what we are doing here. This is what we are here for. And the last pick is what you look like at the end of pride covered in glitter, sweat, and more than a few tears.
This is change and love and reconciliation. And what can happen when we do the hard work of embracing what is emerging now in our lives. Because the truth is that beyond dogma, beyond fixed and final, has absolutely nothing to do with not living according to our heart's deepest desires. It means allowing our heart's deepest desires to guide us into a hurting world and to become the love that is needed. Amen. May you live in blessing. Would you pray with me? When we breathe in and we breathe out and we remember the spirit, the inspiration and the expiration, we remember that this life is before we can even name it so connected. We can remember that this life is before we can even name it so always changing. We can remember before we even name it so that this life is always about exchanging. Letting go and replacing that which does not serve us or others any longer. Letting go and replacing for the next big, deep, true breath of love, of justice, of compassion. And then trusting the breath after that. And the breath after that. And the breath after that. To guide us more fully, more lovingly into our lives. Amen.